friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. now in chapter 3 of the book of Esther, and the title of this morning's sermon is God is Always Ahead. Now, there are always circumstances that overtake us, very difficult, adverse circumstances, and sometimes we are left in a quandary as to what to do. Now, some situations can actually be life-threatening or even devastating such that we reach the limits of our strength or the limits of our intelligence, and we are at our wit's end. I would like to remind you, however, brothers and sisters, that there is actually an invisible world, an invisible world in which there is an invisible war. And whether you like it or not, you and I, children of God, were born into this war song. There's actually a crossfire between God and the evil one, between God and the devil. And at times, because we are caught in the crossfire, we experience great difficulties and adversities during those times. We need to be mindful that the enemy of our souls is seeking to destroy us. I will quote to you a passage of Scripture in John chapter 10, which basically tells us, that the devil is against us, and he seeks to destroy each and every life, our marriages, our children, and even our church. The cities, the nations, these are things that Satan would like to destroy. Thankfully, in the providence of God, God is always several steps ahead of the evil one. Amen? How many of you agree with that? Amen? God is always several steps ahead of the enemy. Now, while we do not know the future, and to many of us, the future might be uncertain, here's one comfort we have, that we are safe in the hands of the living God. Now, in the chapter that we will be studying today, there are actually three progressions, which I'd like to show on the screen right now. And this is how the narrative will flow this morning. So first of all, you have the promotion of the man of the devil. Yes, the devil has a man. In the same way that God has a man of God, well, the devil has a man as well. And that is why in the progression of the story, we find an inevitable conflict with evil. Good and evil will always be at war, and Satan, of course, is relentless as well. And the third point, the third part of the story, we find, we find the evil plan of Satan, and then we will take a look at the timing as well, and here we will see the providence of God. So each progression seems like a death sentence for God's people, but as I mentioned to you, God will always be our great deliverer. So let's go to the first part as we talk about the promotion of the man of the devil, and let's read verses 1 and 2 at this time. It goes, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now here's something I'd like to point out to you. Every word in this particular passage is actually very important. And we need to be mindful of the fact that the narrator himself was carefully choosing certain words. And as he was carefully choosing certain words, he was really trying to emphasize 
something very important. And the emphasis obviously here has to do with the providence of God. Now, what is the phrase here that I feel the narrator wants to emphasize? I believe it is the phrase right at the very beginning of the chapter and also in verse 1. It says, after these events. After these events. Now, what's so important? Why does the narrator tell us that the promotion of Haman actually comes after certain events. So what you and I need to be able to do is try to go back chapter 1 and chapter 2 and find out what were those events that the narrator was talking about. Well, actually, three events could be found here. First of all, you and I know that this happened, the promotion of Haman happened after Queen Vashti, the original king, after Queen Vashti was actually deposed. Now, you know the story. The story was there was a beauty contest later on so that the original queen could actually be replaced. And so who won that contest? Well, it was a Jew, Queen Esther. And so she was the one who was selected to be the next queen of King Xerxes. Now, right after that, it seems likely that Mordecai, the older cousin of Esther, was promoted into the judiciary. Now, likewise, there was another very important event. And what was that? Well, Mordecai was able to discover an assassination plot against King Xerxes. Now, he was not rewarded immediately at that time. I made mention of the fact that God would use this particular event to reward Mordecai later on. And what's really very important to note as well is that this was recorded in the Chronicles of the King. So there was a permanent record of this. Now, why do you think the narrator was saying after these things? Well, I believe what God was really trying to say, what the narrator was really trying to say, is that even before Satan actually promoted the man of evil, God himself had already made steps ahead to protect his own people. And that is by deposing Queen Vashti, promoting Queen Esther to be the next queen, and then promoting Mordecai as well, and these three events would actually lead into the future deliverance of the nation of Israel. And you know, when you think about that, it's really an amazing thought. It's really mind-blowing. Because herein we see the infinite wisdom of God that is at work in our own lives. Sometimes we were not even aware, we're not even conscious of the fact that God is silently working behind the scenes to protect us, to deliver us from certain troubles and certain crises that you and I are not even aware of. You and I know that the future, insofar as our own human point of view is concerned, is uncertain. We don't really know what's going to happen to tomorrow. But the wonderful thing, the wonderful comfort that you and I have is that you and I have a God in whose wisdom He is able to work things behind the scenes for our own protection and our own deliverance. And you know, when, when you know that, when you're conscious of that, your heart begins to rest. Amen? There's calmness in your heart. There is stillness in your heart. Because you know God is in charge. God is in full control of each and every situation. This is the reason why it is actually a sin on our part to worry and to be anxious. Because after all, God holds our future. Now, if you are watching a movie, I mean, if this were a movie, you'd probably say this is so anticlimactic. Because right off the bat, it is as if the narrator was saying, God is going to win in this situation. 
There's actually no suspense. If you're going to think of this as a movie, there seems to be no suspense at all. But the truth of the matter is the suspense was really with Esther, Mordecai, and with the Jews as well. Because they did not really know how God was going to deliver them. And I would like to say that the same thing is true in our case. There is a suspense in our lives that is actually killing us many times because we would want to know what's going to happen in the future. But take comfort, my dear brothers and sisters, in the fact that our God is in control and He will always be in control. Amen? There will never, ever be a time that God will never be in control. That is how our God is. God, listen well, God is never caught by surprise. Amen? We do get surprised, yes. We do get shocked. But in so far as God is concerned, He is never caught by surprise. He is always several steps ahead of the evil one. This is simply how God works. And so again, we see the promotion of this man, Haman, who is the evil one. Now notice what it says, continuing on in verse 1. It says, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. Now here's how, how Satan operated. Obviously, in the mind of Satan, he wanted to destroy the Jews. He wanted to destroy the chosen people of God. And so what does he do? Well, he promotes his own man. And in this particular case, it is Haman who is promoted. And he is promoted. He is given authority. He is given influence. And what is the motivation? The motivation and the intention was to destroy the people of God. Now, he was practically next to the king in power. He was serving as something like a prime minister uh, to King Xerxes. And then we are told also that uh, he was an Agagite. Now, there are some Bible scholars who say, aren't these the ancient enemies of Israel? And my thinking is it's really difficult to believe that the ancient enemies or the ancient foes of Israel would be found in faraway Persia. So I think the more probable thing, and this is also confirmed by, by secular sources, that there was a province in Persia named Agad. All right? So what the Bible is merely telling us or what the narrator is simply telling us is that this person comes from the province of Agad. Now, one of the lessons we derive out here is that even as we know that God is sovereign and that His providence will ultimately protect us, we need to be mindful that Satan will always be at work against us. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, because of Satan's evil contentions, we should be constantly on the alert and on guard. As I mentioned to you, there's an invisible war taking place. And here is the intention of Satan. The intention of Satan is to destroy your life. The intention of Satan is to destroy your marriage. The intention of Satan is to destroy your family and to destroy your children. As I mentioned a while ago, his intention even is to destroy the church. And because of that, because there is an invisible war, we need to be conscious and aware at all times because if we are not on our guard, we will fall victims, we will fall to the prey of Satan. We will fall into his traps. And we will find ourselves by the wayside. And that is actually unfortunate because the Bible actually forewarns us that there is actually a war taking place. There is a war taking place in our souls. And what Satan is trying to do is he is trying to steal our affections towards God. 
He's trying to steal our affections towards the Word of God. He's trying to steal our affections towards the things of God so that our hearts become cold before the very presence of the Lord so that we become indifferent to the things of God. We might still be going through the motions of Christianity. We might still be reading our Bibles. We might still be praying. But is it possible that we are largely unaffected by the things that we are now doing? Now, if that is true, well, then Satan has succeeded. And we don't want him to succeed. We don't want to become victims of Satan. We always want to be victors over and above him. And this is the reason why we need to be aware of his schemes. We need to be aware of this invisible war that is taking place. And I'd like to quote to you Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, as the Bible tells us to put on the full armor of God. So beginning in verse 10, here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now that sounds so redundant and repetitive, but that's actually what our lives should look like. Our lives should not look like we're depending on ourselves, on our intelligence, and our own might. The Bible is calling us to a full, total, absolute dependence on God's might and God's power. Because nothing, it, nothing less than that can protect us from the work of the enemy. And that is why, again, we need to depend on the Lord. Notice what Ephesians 6 verse 10 says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, it says here, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we are not to take lightly these words. Now, take a look at the fact that the Bible says there are schemes of the devil. The Bible says that we are struggling against these rulers. The Bible says we are to resist in the evil day. There's going to be an evil day. What's that evil day? Well, that will be the time of our testing. And by the way, that's not a one-time event. We will be tested on several occasions. And the question is, will you have the strength to survive in the evil day? Because there will be an evil day. There will be a time when, when your morality and your convictions will actually be tested whether you will fall into temptation or whether you will stand firm in the Lord. Now, here's the big question. Are you prepared? Are you ready to go to war against the enemy? Notice what else the Bible says here. Extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, that basically tells you that the enemy is relentless. He is relentless. He never stops. Perseverance is actually one of the things that Satan has. He perseveres against God's people. And that's the reason why we need to be extra careful. We need to be cautious. We need to be on guard at all times. And this is exactly what you and I see here in the book of Esther. Satan was working hard to destroy God's people. So what do we see in this passage? If God has a man of God, Satan has a man of the devil. Now, note how Satan orchestrates his promotion, his power, his authority, his influence to become an instrument of war to destroy God's people. 
Satan is out there, dear brothers and sisters, making plans, making schemes to destroy your life, your marriage, your city, your nation. So let me ask you this question. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be complacent? Are you going to be lazy? Are you just going to say, well, whatever? Well, you can't do that with the evil one. You can't say whatever. Because if you have that attitude, he will devour you because he is a roaring lion. And so what we see here, starting in verse 2, is the inevitable conflict with evil. Haman here is the inevitable. I don't know if you watched the Avengers movie. I don't think you caught that. <laughs> Haman here is the inevitable. He wanted to destroy God's people. Take a look at verse 2, please. It says, All the kings who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now, what was Mordecai doing here? Was he being prideful? Was he a very proud person? That is why he was not paying homage to uh, Haman. Well, I think Mordecai was actually following the path of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As I mentioned to you, some Bible scholars think that this was just a case of pride on the part of Daniel, and I would beg to disagree on that. And it seems like an extra biblical literature, which of course is not as authoritative as the Bible, seems to confirm this. And I will quote that to you in a bit. Now, from that literature is the following quote from Mordecai himself. And if this is true, this somehow confirms my, my thinking. It goes, Thou knowest, Lord, this is from Mordecai, Thou knowest, Lord, that it was neither in contempt nor pride nor for any desire of glory that I did not bow down to proud Haman. For I could have been content with goodwill for the salvation of Israel to kiss the soles of his feet. But I did this that I might not prefer the glory of man above the glory of God, neither will I worship any but thee. So here we find that it was not about pride. In fact, later on, I will show to you and confirm this as Mordecai himself identifies himself with God's people. And we will uh, see that in a bit. But my whole point here was that he was making a stand. He was making a stand. And we too, we need to make a stand against the world and against compromises. Oftentimes, we come under duress and we're pressured by friends, we're pressured by business partners, we're pressured by our classmates and our office mates to conform to their culture. And friends, we cannot do that. We cannot compromise our faith. We need to be faithful to our convictions. We need to be faithful to the faith that God has given to us. And it's a real struggle for a lot of people, most especially those who are in their workplace because they, they appear as oddballs because everybody else is doing it and we're flowing against the tide. But then again, this is our calling. And by the way, friends, God never promised that the Christian life is going to be an easy life. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ say to us that we need to take up our cross now, that in itself tells us that there is a cost. There is, there is a stiff price to pay for following the Lord Jesus Christ. The admission fee in God's kingdom is free. But the subscription rates are very costly. That's how it is in God's kingdom. Now, let me ask you, are you willing to pay the price? Because you know what? This is not about pleasing men. This is not about pleasing our friends, our office mates. This is about pleasing God. Because in the end, brothers and sisters, when you and I come face to face with God, we will stand alone in the very presence of God. We're not going to be judged as a group. 
We're not going to be judged as a church, but rather you and I will be judged by God as individuals. And the question is, will you be able to stand and hold your head up high when Christ begins to ask you, what have you done for me, my dear servant? Will he be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Th that, to me, means all the world to a Bible-believing Christian. That is what really matters. And Mordecai did the right thing. So verse 3 and 4 follows through, and it says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them, notice, that he was a Jew. The king's servants wanted Mordecai to conform. But rather than doing so, he stands firm and in fact reveals his identity as a Jew, as a believer of Yahweh. He identified himself with the people of God. He could have hidden this. He could have hidden under the cloak of the judiciary. He, he could have not revealed. It was possible for him not to reveal who he was. But you see, he felt he was not going to be truthful to himself. And he felt that it was going to be a betrayal of his faith and his convictions. So he, he boldly declares, I'm a Jew. I'm a believer of Yahweh. And that's the reason why I'm not conforming to what Haman wants me to do. He wants me to pay homage to him. He wants me to bow down to him. I can't do that because I only bow down and only pay homage to God. He's, go, he's, going to, he's, go, he's asking me to do something that is against my conscience, and I simply cannot do that. And friends, we have to be like this. Are you ashamed to identify yourself as a Christian? And sometimes I know that some believers, when they come to church, they ride the jeepney or the public transport, and they're holding on to their Bibles. And all of a sudden, somebody stares at what they're holding on to, and, and they see the inscription, the Holy Bible. And some believers become so ashamed and embarrassed that they're holding on to the Bible that they actually turn it down. They, they put it face down so that it could not be seen that they're holding the Holy Bible. Should we be ashamed of the Word of God? I don't think so. God was the one who created us. God was the one who saved and redeemed us. Why should we be ashamed and embarrassed to be identified with Him? Now, of course, when you identify yourself as a Christian, you better make sure that your testimony lines up with your profession. Otherwise, you will be putting to shame the name of the Lord. But friends, we should never, ever be ashamed of our faith. The world will always call us to conform to it. Now, notice what they were doing here. They were speaking to Mordecai daily. And they were saying, look, Mordecai, you know what you're doing? You're the only one doing this. You're the only one who is going against the tide. Do you want to really risk your position? Do you want to risk your life? Do you want to risk your family? Don't do this. You're endangering yourself. Conform. It's the easiest. It's the path of least resistance. It's the most comfortable path for you. But Mordecai refused, refused to follow that path because it was a path that would bring displeasure to his Lord, and he was not going to do that. How I pray that we would have that kind of a heart. How I pray that we would fear God more than we fear men. Because I think in the 21st century, our problem is we fear men more than we fear God. We fear what others have to say about us instead of what God has to say about our lives. We want the admiration. We want the adoration of people. 
Friends, what about the admiration and the adoration of God? What about the pleasure of God? What about the perfect will of God? What about what God wants in our lives? What about our own destiny and our own calling and our own purpose? Should we set that aside just so our peers would admire and congratulate and commend us? Friends, that's not, that's not the reason why Christ saved you. Christ saved you so that you might belong to Him. And because you belong to Him, everything that you want in your life, you need to follow. You need to obey. Now, here's what happens. The, the plot begins to thicken, beginning at verse 5. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. This guy was so prideful. He is, he's somebody whom you might want to call a control freak. He wanted everybody to be under his control. He wanted everybody to pay homage to him. He wanted everybody to kowtow to him and to bow down to him. That's what he wanted. He was very prideful. And you will know people who are prideful because they want people to bow to them. They want people to bow to whatever they want. They're always trying to control people, and that's not right. Because, friends, only God should have control of people. And so here we find the fact that Mordecai was an uncompromising Jew, and it spelled trouble for him since he would not acquiesce with the demands of the ungodly Haman. Know that because we are different, we cannot avoid conflict, even though we do not want to make enemies. I don't want to make enemies. I'm sure you do not want to make enemies. But you know what? When you're standing for the truth, when you're standing for what is right, when you're standing for God, it cannot be avoided that you will have enemies. In fact, here's the fearful thing. If the world loves you and considers you as a great friend, could it be that there is some compromise in your life? Could it be that you cannot, you are not identifiable at all as a believer or as a Christian? They can't actually, they, they don't have a handle as to who you are and what you represent. Is it possible that that is the reason why you have so many friends in the world? Again, I'm not saying or espousing that we should try to make enemies. No, I'm not saying that. But once again, if you're standing for the truth, that's what's going to happen. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19, please. Here it goes. It says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who decide to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say that you might be persecuted. It says you will be persecuted. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll become a martyr or that you'll be decapitated or that you will be uh, burned to a stake. No, uh, that may not happen. But you will experience some form of persecution. It will happen. So here's what takes place in verse 6. But he disdained, Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. As always happens, the strong stand of a believer results in widespread persecution. However, I'd like to make a little sidebar here because we don't want to exonerate Mordecai too much. Remember also that Mordecai Esther, together with some of the Jews in the exile, remained on in the Medo-Persian kingdom 
in spite of the fact that God ordained for them to return back to the land of Canaan. And because they were comfortable already in their place of exile, they refused to follow the perfect will of God. So I don't want to exonerate Mordecai too much because he was actually outside the will of God. So there is really a stiff price to pay when you compromise. When you do not follow the perfect will of God, there is a stiff price to pay. And here, what it meant was not only the life of Mordecai was at stake, but even the lives of all the Jews were at stake here. Killing all the Jews, by the way, meant that even the Jews who had returned all the way back to the land of Canaan would also be killed. Now, I'd like you to see the big picture here. Do you know that the killing of the Jews, if all the Jews would be killed at that time, you and I would not even be having a discussion this morning. I would not even be here in this pulpit this morning. You would not even be sitting in this chair. There would not even be a building. There would not even be a place where you and I will gather. You know why? Because if Haman succeeded in his plan to annihilate all of the Jews, that would mean there would be no Messiah, there would be no Savior, and there would be no salvation to talk about. We would not even talk about our names written in the book of life. That is why when I studied the book of Esther, I began to appreciate and admire this book like never before because then I realized what was really at stake here. Sometimes our problem is we underestimate the intelligence of Satan. Now Satan was not just an angry person who was spilling his wrath all over the world. No, whatever he was doing was well thought of. He was really smarter than we give credit him for. Because Satan at the very beginning, remember he was in the Garden of Eden and he knew what had happened. He knew that Adam and Eve had fallen and he was aware of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He was aware of the protovangel. He was aware that God had a plan for the redemption of mankind. God had a plan right at the very beginning and Satan heard of that plan. God had a plan that when, an, when Adam and Eve would fall, a Savior would be born. And that Savior would, would save not only Adam and Eve, but the rest of mankind if they would come and receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Satan knew that. And so this was really his master plan to destroy God's people. And he was thinking, ha, if I succeed in doing this, there will be no Savior to talk about. There will be no Messiah to talk about. There would be no salvation to talk about. And so I, together with the rest of mankind, we would all be in hell. Because mystery loves company. And he wanted the company of all human beings in the bottomless pit, in the lake of fire. But thanks be to God. God is always ahead. Amen. God knows what Satan has come up with. And in the infinite wisdom of God, God always wins. Hallelujah. God always wins. Amen. God always wins. And we need to thank God for that. That's why, remember what I mentioned to you? There were some people who actually did not want the book of Esther to be part of the Old Testament canon, to be part of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament canon. And I'm thinking, wow, if they took out the book of Esther... They would have taken out a very important piece, a very important narrative, 
A narrative that, that tells the story of how God delivered the Jews so that the Messiah could be born, so that Jesus could come and we could be saved by His blood. Amen? So that He could die on the cross and resurrect on the third day and grant salvation for all of mankind. Hallelujah. Praise God for the book of Esther. Amen? Praise God. Praise God that it is part of the canon. What a beautiful story this is. Now, take a look at the evil plan and the timing of Satan here in verse 7. It says, In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, and from month to month until the 12th month. That is the month Adar. Could you say 12th month? Say it again, please. Remember what I mentioned to you in the previous sermon? Dates are not just dates. Amen? Could you say to your neighbor, dates are not just dates. Dates are divine appointments. Come on, say it louder, please. Today, of course, obviously, is a divine appointment. I hope you're not sleeping on your divine appointment. So if you see somebody with sleepy eyes, kindly, uh, kindly wake him up because this is his divine appointment. All right? Let me read to you from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And this is so important. Why was the 12 months so important? Let's find out. Well, Haman, along with many people in the Persian Empire, was extremely superstitious. It's interesting how even the superstition of some people could be used by God for his own end. Not that the superstition is true. It says, the Persian religious system stressed fate and chance. Haman was allowing fate by the casting of the lot to dictate his move against the Jewish nation. Little did he realize that the God who created all things and controls all events was in control of that situation, the lot casting. All right? By the way, this does not exonerate you from joining the lottery. All right? This is not about that. The author included a seemingly obscure part of the account by recording that Haman used a per, a Babylonian word for the lot, to decide when the Jews should be killed. When the Jews should be killed. The original readers of this book would have understood that God was working to protect His people even in the timing of events. As things worked out, the Jews had almost a year in which to prepare themselves for the conflict with their enemies. Because 12 months is equal to what? Say it please. 12 months is equal to? One year. The lot fell on the 12th month. The Jews had much Time to prepare. They had one year to prepare. That is why this timing was of God. Because guess what? If the lot fell on the first month or even on the second or third month, would the Jews have time to prepare themselves so that they could defend themselves, so that they could protect themselves? No, they would not have enough time. One month is too short. Two months is too short. Three months is too short. And maybe even half of the year is even too short. That is why God gave them a whole year to prepare themselves. God is a God of perfect timing. Amen? God is a God of perfect timing. Let me share to you the story of one of my pastor friends, Pastor Ding Bolos of... Uh, Agape Christian Fellowship in London. His daughter would always be on time riding the tube. Some of you know the 
underground train. If you, if you lived in London, you know that they have an underground public transport. And so his daughter, Tammy, would always be on time as she would always go to office. But there was one particular time she was late by 10 minutes. And guess what? Her being late was actually providential. You know why? Because that was the time of the bombing of the trains. If she had arrived on time, she would have been one of the victims. But God is a God of perfect timing. Amen? God is a God of perfect timing. And I can tell you of many other stories of people missing their flights. And they're thinking, why did I miss this flight? I have to pay extra again. And then guess what they discovered? The plane that they were supposed to ride is a plane that crashes. And all of a sudden, they're thanking God, never mind the money, because I have survived. So many stories, even when the World Trade Center, uh, remember the, the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center? There are many stories, even of believers, who came in late for some reason or another. But once again, the timing of God was providential. You know what? Let me just point this out to you. Sometimes we're not even aware that God has protected, with, with the timing that He has worked in our lives, He has protected us from certain dangers that were lurking against us. That's why the fact that you are here and you're breathing, you're alive, guess what? It only means God has been protecting you all your life. God has always been the God of perfect timing in your life. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great God we serve. Amen. What a great God we serve. So again, the, the plot thickens further. In, in verse 8, it says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from the laws of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Now, there was some truth to this, and there was some lie in this. This was not the whole truth. The truth was they had different laws. They were actually countercultural. And friends, let me just say this. Whether we like it or not, we're going to be countercultural because we have different values. We, because we, we have a different understanding of morality. I recall uh, the pastor's wife of Jun Ang, our pastor in, in Lakewood. California. Um, she got pregnant, so she was she was about to give birth to her baby boy. And when she was in the presence of the doctor and the nurse, this was the question that was asked her: Are you having this baby? Are you having this baby? What was she really asking? She was actually giving Gigi, the wife, an option for abortion. And Gigi, of course, being a pastor's wife and a strong Bible-believing Christian, said, Of course, I'm going to have this baby. But you see, that's how the world operates. The world does not understand why why you and I cannot tolerate the LGBT movement. Now, we do not hate the people in this movement, and I would like to be able to say that God loves them. But then, just because God loves them does not mean to say that they should not repent. The Bible says all men are called by God to repent. 
And whether we like it or not, we cannot issue politically correct statements just to please people. Just so we don't offend people. We have to say, state the truth as it is. We have to state the truth that in the Bible, the Bible says that homosexuals will go to hell. And you need to tell that to your homosexual friends. Now, of course, you need to do it in love. Don't tell them. Don't shake their hands and say, you're going to hell. That's why you need the book, Conversational Evangelism. Let them surface the truth themselves. And again, friends, it, it will always be that way. We will always be countercultural, but we always need to make a stand for God. We cannot dance with the world. We cannot dance with the music of the world and accommodate abortion or the gay movement or ecumenism. And they will hate us for it. Haman, however, here makes a false accusation that the Jews were actually disobedient to the king's laws, which was not true. They were actually very obedient. That is why many of them remained on in the Medo-Persian kingdom because they were prospering there. So again, notice how the length that people will, will, will get into just simply to put down the people of God. Obviously, behind this was Satan himself. Now, take a look at verse 9. It says, If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. The Bible knowledge says, Haman went into the king to present his plan. Falsely accusing all Jews of refusing to obey the king's laws, he suggested that the king would be better off if the Jews scattered throughout the empire were exterminated. Haman said he himself was willing to bear the costs involved in carrying out this decree, which tells us that Haman must have been extremely wealthy. As the highest official, he undoubtedly had many opportunities to add to his personal fortune. 10,000 talents of silver, just to give you an idea, was about 750,000 pounds. An enormous amount worth millions of dollars. To be exact, $10 million. Haman was saying, I'm willing to give you, king, $10 million just kill all of the Jews. Now, that was the staggering sum that Haman was willing to pay. Now, Haman is just a pawn of Satan being used to carry out the devil's schemes. So guess what was the response of the king? The king took his signet ring, verse 10, from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Now, why would King Xerxes give his own signet ring? What was the significance of the signet ring? Well, the signet ring, when impressed on clay, made a special imprint which, like a signature, represented the king's authority. The king noted that Haman could do with the people as he pleased. But you know what the king did not understand? His wife was a Jew. What he did not know was that the life of his wife was under threat because of this hideous plan of Haman. He was not even thinking about it. By the way, five times in the book of Esther, Haman is called the Jew's enemy. So don't be surprised when we make enemies even if we don't want to make one. So the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, the people also, and do with them as you please. Satan pulls no stops. If a man has to spend $10 million just to fulfill his purposes, he will find the money to be able to do that. And just think about this. This was really thoughtless, mindless, without conscience. Can you imagine slaughtering an entire nation? And you're not even bothered one bit by it. 
There was no love, no compassion, no mercy. No love whatsoever in the hearts of these men. They were ruthless. And by the way, that tells you that this is all demonic. How could people be like that? It has to be demonic. And Satan is definitely at work in the minds and hearts of people so that they become numb and they become unfeeling and their conscience doesn't get bothered at all. So here's what happens in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in how many days? One day. One day, a mass slaughter of an entire nation. Can you think about the bloodshed that will take place in the streets? Can, can you even imagine how, how the streets would be colored red? Because of all the, the blood of all the Jews, children, women, all of the Jews, old and young, the, the streets would be colored red with all the blood of people. And yet, didn't bother them one bit. It says, without delay, the edict, the New Bible Commentary says, without delay, the edict was drawn up copied, translated, sealed with the king's ring and sent out to all parts of the empire by means of the postal system which was inaugurated by King Cyrus. This system actually depended on relays of horses stationed throughout the empire to ensure swift communication. The decree was repetitious and specific. It was to be made public so that no one could plead ignorance of the law. Note here, the evil plan was all throughout the empire. Note that the plan was to totally wipe out the Jewish race regardless of age and gender. Note also that the plan was to seize all their resources. Obviously, if Haman was going to spend $10 million, he would want to recover all those expenses. So how will he do that? By taking all the spoils or by taking at least some of the spoils coming from the Jews. Verses 14 and 15 reads, A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples, so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. Now guess what the king and Haman were doing? And while the king and Haman sat down to drink with their pinkies up in the air, the city of Susa was in confusion. They didn't care at all about what was happening. They were, they were having a fun time. They were enjoying themselves, drinking wine. And that's how Satan's instruments are. They're always at ease, confident that their evil plans would succeed. They don't care about the people. In the meantime, the whole city, the whole province, the whole empire was in confusion. Why? Because probably the other nations were thinking, will we be the next one? Will we be the next one? That's why, as I mentioned to you, Haman was the inevitable Right? If you haven't watched the Avengers movie, you better watch it. It's the last one. It's the end game. Now what Satan's instruments do not know is that their plans are for naught because God was several steps ahead. All the things that the devil had done was actually after preparations were made by God himself. How many of you, well, 
this, this will reveal my age. Because I know right now, when you watch movies, you have to watch it right at the very beginning, right? Because the seats are reserved. But during my time, we could actually get into the movie house at any time we wanted. And we could actually repeat the movie as many times as we wanted. And here is what would happen many times when I would watch movies. Sometimes, you know, I could not wait uh, uh, at the beginning of the screening. And what I would do is, is I would enter sometimes near the end of the movie. That's a real spoiler, right? When, when, you, when you enter and you watch a movie at the end, what, what, do you, what do you learn? You learn how, what? How it all ends, right? So it becomes anti-climactic. And you know what? This story was actually anti-climactic because it begins with after these things. And God is simply saying, my children, in the end, my hands will be raised up because I am the winner. Amen. God wins all the time. Hallelujah. Amen. Our God, listen well, is a God of providence. Our God is a God who is sovereign and in full control of everything. Our God is all-knowing and Satan will never ever be able to outwit our God because our God will always be ahead of Satan and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen. Thank God. Our God is God. Hallelujah. Amen. Give the Lord a big hand, please. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we are here present because of what happened in the book of Esther. It's really amazing that how events of long ago, maybe more than 3,000 years or more than 2,000 years ago, could largely affect our situation right now. And we're doing a sort of time travel back into the narrative of Esther, seeing how you were able to fix the situation. Haman was this Thanos that desired to destroy the Jews and destroy all of us and leave us gnashing our teeth in the lake of fire but you knew this ahead of time and you would not permit and allow Satan to be victorious over us and so how thankful we are that our names are written in the book of life we rejoice in the fact that because Satan did not succeed the Messiah was born. The Savior was born. Christ was born. He lived and died and rose again on the third day. And because He lives, we too shall live. Because He lives, our names are written in the book of life. Because He lives, our sins have been cleansed washed and purified our past, our present, and our future. How thankful we are, O oh God, that you are an all-knowing God, an all-wise God, and you are an all-loving God, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of might, a God of power, a God of providence, a God who is sovereign over all. 
We thank you that you are our God and you are the one and only true living God. There is no one else. There is no one else but you. You are our Savior. You are our King. You are our God. You are our Lord and our Savior. And we declare today, O oh God, that we are blessed. Hallelujah. We are blessed, O oh God, because of you, O oh Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are the God we worship. You are the hero of our lives, O oh God. Blessed be your holy name. And we look forward to eternity to worship you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our soul. Thank you for today. Thank you for Esther. Thank you for Mordecai. Thank you, Lord, for our God. Hallelujah. Blessed be your holy name, O oh Lord. Hallelujah. 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 And Lord, we also thank you that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And whatever has been achieved today, we return back to you all praises and honor because you and you alone deserve it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.